0: Good afternoon and welcome to the Middle East Forums webinar and podcast series Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry advisor to the Middle East Forums Israel office join us here each Wednesday at 3pm Eastern for an update on all events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q and A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. Now with that, I will turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry.
1: Thank you very much, Stacy. good evening from Israel. Um, we're gonna focus much uh, of tonight's <clears throat> <This> talk, <clears throat> excuse me, On what was described as a media blitz by Prime Minister Naftali Bennett uh, in the weekend's newspapers last weekend. Uh, It's the first time uh, since he took over the job around eight months ago that he's really devoted significant time um, to the media, to getting his messages across, talking about his achievements, talking about his challenges. And he didn't just choose one or two, or even just one. Uh, He gave six major interviews. Obviously, here in Israel, the Friday papers are the most significant, the weekend papers. Uh, for those who are more observant of the Jewish Sabbath, you know, the, the actual print publications are very important because you're not online or watching TV or listening to the radio or whatever it is. Um, so these are always the most sought-after uh, papers of the week. Um, and there's a lot uh, to pass uh, through in the many interviews. A lot of them are the sort of expected stuff uh, attacking Netanyahu, his predecessor, uh, for his what he calls a propaganda of lies, um, sending his uh, emissaries out to attack him, et etc. Uh, et cetera. Et cetera. Um, there's a lot of interesting stuff about uh, his positions vis-a-vis Iran, um, Palestinians. Coronavirus got a lot of play because that's a major issue, and um, there's a... There's a lack of confidence, let's say, certainly um, so a lack of support in what this uh, current government is doing on the Omicron wave. Uh, some, uh, I think this week uh, per capita, Israel had one of the largest uh, infection rates in the world, even if they don't have very high, you know, sort of applicable uh, death rates, fatality rates, although this week there's been around 50 deaths every day, which is extremely high, but uh, on the whole not, uh, not in line with uh, the actual infection rates. And some say they were slow. Some say they were confusing orders. This day, one uh, one message uh, or one uh, decision was made the next day, something else. Uh, so he got a lot of uh, play on that, a lot of pushback from, from some of the uh, interviewers. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is why, why he decided to give them now. I think uh, a big part of it's connected to the Netanyahu plea bargain, the so-called Big Bang that we've spoken about in, uh, in the last few weeks. It's now not happening, it's been put on the back burner. I think uh, it won't be put back on the front burner, as it were, uh, for a good few months, if not half a year. Uh, they still haven't decided on a new attorney general. I think it's been narrowed down to three, but the discussions are going on. Um, there is uh, an interim attorney general, but they're not gonna make any major decisions. And then when a new attorney general is appointed, they're going to need a lot of time to catch up uh, to learn the case inside and out. And obviously the Netanyahu's uh, lawyers will will be looking and studying also the new attorney general to see what what direction they're going in, whether it's worth an outreach, whether they can get a better deal, which I doubt uh, than they had possibly on the table with Mandelblit. So uh, to a certain extent, Israeli politics is back where it was a month ago before even this talk of a plea bargain. Um, there's a lot of talk about the timing of that. Did Bennett know that the plea bargain is now taking on the table? Did he do the media blitz thinking that plea bargain could be on the table and uh, this government may have had weeks, if not only a few months uh, to exist? I, I think it's a combination of things. I think the Netanyahu, the suggestions or the possibility of Netanyahu leaving, uh, politics for a while uh, certainly played into that. Um, I think the fact that his approval rating according to one poll at least was as low as 4%. Uh, again, it's not like in, in the US where it's just sort of, uh, you know, do you like or not? It's uh, they put them up against uh, various other figures in Israel. Sometimes it'd be seven, eight, nine, ten 10 other figures. So 4% is not as it's low, but it's not—you know—it's not a one-on-one race where the other person gets ninety-six or something like that, or the disapproval—the the, the disapproval was ninety-six percent. It's not as simple as that, but it's still very low. Uh, and obviously, the Omicron and the economy and everything going on—that certainly didn't help. Um, but what was uh, interesting about it there was a number of things. A uh, number of things that was interesting. Uh, many people focused on some comments that he made, where again he tried to justify uh, you know, his right-wing positions. He, he's stressing all his interviews. I'm still a right-wing man. I still believe in everything I believed in before. I still am against the Palestinian state. I will not meet with Abu Mazen. I will not meet with anyone who's taking ITF soldiers to The Hague, uh, the ICC. Um, despite the fact that other members of the cabinet are, he said that there'll be no Oslo process, unlike in his predecessor's time, alluding to Netanyahu, who had met with uh, Mahmoud Abbas and other senior Palestinian leaders had allowed a peace process, a diplomatic process, to happen various times during his tenure, uh, and he really tried to to push his right wing credentials. Admitting that it's a difficult government to govern because there are different elements with people who disagree with him, and you know they 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 have their meetings, they have their uh, ideologies, they have their their own narrative, and but there's going to be no. Uh, there's going to be no practical purpose. He talked about the fact that he stopped, he said no to US President Biden on the US consulate issue in Jerusalem. Uh, he played this up. He said, I've, I'm more right wing. I'll be building more. And now at the moment, uh, today, uh, Abichai on pretty much his last decision, allowed for uh, the establishment at least post you no know, problems or challenges to the establishment of a new Uh, outpost to which is a big bone of contention within the government that could also bring up uh, some issues. But what he did say, which was interesting, is that he is the head of a new national camp. Um, National camp in Israel means the right-wing camp. Uh, The left-wing is usually called the dovish camp or the peace camp. The national camp usually signifies the right-wing. And what a lot of commentators were trying to get out of that is that uh, there is talk the assessments uh, claimed, that uh, uh, Bennett is trying to uh, put his Yamina party with Gidon Saar's New Hope party and Abigdor Liebman's Yisrael Beiteinu party together to create a new uh, right-wing party that could challenge the Likud. This is what a lot of people were talking about. Uh, My particular view is it was something less than that. I, I don't believe that there will be this new party I think what he was trying to say is that there's a significant national cap within this alternative government um, and that uh, it's significant enough and it's leading uh, the state. I think his argument would be that he's allowed, he's done a lot more right-wing things even than the previous so-called right-wing governments. That's his argument. Um, and while I'm sure that there have been talks, have been certain people interested in putting together a larger party, I don't believe it will happen for a number of factors. For Naftali Bennett it makes sense because he really hasn't made that many inroads since he's been prime minister uh, to try and get boost his numbers. Uh, his numbers when it comes down to how much percentage he would get in the next elections, how many seats has not expanded. He's pretty much lost uh, most of his right-wing base his uh, right-wing religious base he's brought in some more moderates, moderate right wing, um, uh, but he's probably lost his base. So I think uh, uh, he understands that. So maybe uh, for him, it makes sense. Even for Gidon Saar, um, who his polling numbers have really dropped in, in certain polls, he's not even reaching the threshold, which means if elections were held today, he wouldn't necessarily even uh, pass the threshold and, and, and gain any kind of seats. Uh, for Victor Liebman, it makes less sense, and, uh, and the reasons are multiple. First of all, Victor Liebman, as opposed to the other two, have has a solid base. When I say solid, we're talking about five to six minimum of older uh, Russian-speaking Israelis uh, that he can count on. He's ensuring, no matter what, that uh, he will look after that base. And you know, if he can get another seat or two, that that's uh, an added bonus. Naftali better as I said, has lost his base. Gidon Saar never really captured a base, and whatever base he had it seems to have deserted him, perhaps returned to the Likud, according to the polls. Um, but also, Victor Liebman has been burnt by this sort of uh, coming together of other parties. Uh, there was a time, it was, I think, if I'm not much mistaken, 2013, where Likud and Yeshua Bethenu ran together. That was mostly on the vice of um, American strategist Arthur Finkelstein, who worked with both Netanyahu and Lieberman and was trusted by both, and he came up with these numbers that together the parties would have 45 seats, returning to the days where there'd be one supremely large party, and that's what uh, uh, the two parties sort of ran on. They believed that together they could become one larger party. Uh, in the end, they actually uh, slumped to a pretty meagre 31, uh, and I certainly think that burnt Avigdor Lieberman, and it also sent a message wider in Israeli politics on the whole, that a sum of your parts, you're never as strong together as the sum of your parts, because, again, Avigdor Lieberman and Naftali Bennett and Saar may be close on diplomatic issues or political issues or security issues. But on other issues, for example, religion and state, which is a major issue at the moment, they're much further apart. Uh, you've got the hawkish members of Yamina on religion and state issues, where Ishra is uh, far more dovish on religious state issues. What I mean by that is wants to reform things like Kashrut um, conversion, uh, the Kotel compromise, uh, things like that. They're much closer to Yeshatid's positions on those. So I think it would be very unwieldy to have these uh, parties together and again you know they can agree on certain things and disagree on other things while they're separate parties but together it's, it's far more difficult to formulate to common stance across the board so I don't see that happening I could be wrong um, but I, I just don't think it will happen because again you'd have to put the egos aside they're being burned uh, Where where is their base? because if, you, if for example Victor Lieberman comes in maybe some of the more traditionally based supporters of Naftali Bennett would then be turned off and move to another party and vice versa. So, again, I just, I just don't see that happening. But I think what Bennett was trying to say is that he is, you know, his government that he's leading has a significant right wing camp in it, and they are getting some things done, obviously, not everything. And he, he underlined the fact that he's not able to achieve everything he's able to achieve. Um, But I think that's more likely than anything else. So I don't see necessarily the formation of a new party. Uh, Obviously, there's a certain amount of time until elections, so one never knows. Uh, Another very interesting element, and it's significant, is that uh, one of the papers that he went to and gave a a very long, lengthy interview with Yisrael Aiyom. Yisrael Aiyom, for those who aren't familiar, is the largest, uh, has the largest circulation in Israel of any paper, primarily because it's free. It's given out on every street corner, shops and restaurants or or whatever, so it has a very large circulation. It was created by Sheldon Adelson uh, and basically became what many uh, claimed, at least, uh, was a mouthpiece for uh, Netanyahu. It even gained the nickname Bibi Ton, playing on um, Netanyahu's Nickname and uh, Eton, which is newspaper. Uh, it's something obviously the paper itself rejected, uh, but interestingly, Shelton Adelson passed away a number of months ago and uh, his his widow, Miriam Adelson, has taken over uh, at the paper. And it seems like she's a lot more angry over Netanyahu's um, attitude towards the paper. And that's what part of the, uh, the Netanyahu criminal cases that, uh, he said that he would stop uh, Israel Eion from having a Friday edition, which hurt his main rival, Yediyot Ahonot, in a deal with Yediyot Ahonot, uh, um, to give more favorable coverage. That's, I think that's uh, the case 2000. That's a large part of case 2000. And Adelson's were certainly not happy about it at the time, but a lot more information has come out during the court case. And it's said that Miriam Adelson certainly feels a lot more bitter towards that experience than her late husband did. What we saw this week um, was that the editor, Boaz Bismuth, uh, resigned at the position, or who knows, was asked to leave the position. Uh, Boaz Bismuth was very much in the Netanyahu camp, was very much a a loyalist to the Netanyahu narrative, and Donald Trump as well. Uh, The fact that he's been uh, replaced um, has led to a lot of suggestions that the paper is going to start moving towards Naftali Bennett. Uh, that apparently Miriam Adelson is a lot more sympathetic to uh, Bennett. Don't forget Bennett was attacked many times in the past as all of Netanyahu's uh, allies were. Um, And if Bennett could become the uh, benefactor of this new change in direction uh, uh, towards him uh, from the larger uh, circulated paper in the country, that could be highly significant. Um, there are those who say that it's happening, and a lot of people point to the relatively sympathetic interview he received from Yisrael Yom, whereas probably he wouldn't have received such a sympathetic one uh, previously. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of talk around that, and although it may seem relatively insignificant, it can be uh, possibly extremely significant. Um, I would like to hear any questions that you may have on any of these subjects or anything else that's happened this week.
0: Okay, thank you so much. We have quite a few questions coming in. The first one from anonymous attendee is, what are the odds of an election being held in the near future? And if so, what party is likely to win?
1: Well, the first question I would say, I think it's unlikely, one never knows. Um, uh, I think that now that uh, Abichai Mandelblit uh, has left the attorney general's office, uh, the plea bargain has certainly being put off for a number of months, if not up to, as I said, half a year, if even the person who comes in, we don't know who that will be, but it's suspected that Netanyahu probably won't get as good deal as he would have under Mandelblit. So perhaps the whole issue is off the table, which means Netanyahu remains as leader of the opposition for now, uh, which also means that this government still retains uh, the significance of being that anti sort of coalition. some argue that the only glue uh, of this coalition is the fact that um, uh, it's, it's, you know, it doesn't trust uh, Netanyahu on many different levels. So I think at the moment, I don't see elections happening uh, in the immediate near future. And as far as who's going to win, well, uh, you know, as, as we talked about before, no one really wins. No one party wins Israeli, uh, the Israeli uh, uh, elections. Uh, because it's, you know, it's about their share of the Knesset. And usually what happens is, is that uh, who wins the election usually happens in negotiations after that. Uh, the numbers are not drastically changing uh, from poll to poll. The Likud has certainly gained a few of its seats, perhaps, as I said earlier, at the cost of um, uh, New Hope, kidon on SARS party. Um, but the numbers, the overall mathematics hasn't changed. What actually most polls have said that neither bloc will have a majority, uh, and the reason for that is because the United Arab list um, uh, will have uh, six or seven seats, maybe even eight. So neither neither side uh, could form a government without them, and they won't sit with either side. It's one thing for Mansour Abbas's Ram Party, who has for a while been uh, you know reaching out or reached out to, but no one will sit with. Um, with uh, the United Arabists. So at the moment we could be, if there were elections today and the results of the polls would be the actual results, we could just be going for a a subsequent uh, number of elections after that.
0: Thank you. And Eric asks, is there any scenario where the religious movement will lose some of its power in Israeli society?
1: When he says religious movement, I'm not clear exactly what he means, but I'm going to assume the ultra orthodox parties. Um, it's it has lost power because it's in the opposition, and uh, everything that's happening now in religion and state, uh, certainly to its detriment. You know, it's had the monopoly over Kashrut, uh, you know kosher standards in restaurants and and and, uh, and hotels, etc it's losing its monopoly on conversion. So the, the chief rabbinate is trying to fight that tooth and nail. Uh, it's lost uh, this week with the part passage of the first reading of the enlistment bill. This is something which ostensibly, uh, if one remembers back to that, after the first elections before May, go round of elections, Yisrael uh, Beiteinu, uh, Vito Lehman's party, said that they wouldn't join a government uh, that wouldn't pass, pass this law. And this law uh, would require a greater number of ultra-Orthodox to serve in the army or do national service and increase the numbers every year. But uh, so, so if this law actually passed at the second time of counting, at least it passed its first reading, that obviously it's, it's got a bit of a way to go, but it's something which the ultra-Orthodox certainly fought against truthfully behind closed doors it's not a great impediment for them. You know, they fight a tooth and nail publicly and they claim it's a destruction of Jewish learning in the in the state of Israel, but behind closed doors, and I've spoken to a number of people involved with these parties, they, they're they not afraid of the law. They even sort of laugh a little bit. I've even heard some members of Knesset from the Altruism parties laugh that this is the great thing that they're going to do. It's, it's, it's not significant enough for them, but uh, certainly in the op- they don't like to be in the opposition. They need to be in power. They need to be closer to decision making for the budgets for their yeshivot, or whether it's for uh, these decisions. You know they want to fight every reform because they 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 take a maximalist position on issues of religion and state. So certainly it's hurting them. But uh, as I said, with the with the dynamics as they are in Israeli politics, the ultra orthodox are always an attractive partner for any block, whether it's left or right, because they don't have firm positions on certain key issues, like the di- diplomatic or security issues, as long as they get their uh, budgets, they get uh, control over certain ministries, whether it's religious affairs or interior. Um, so they're suffering, they want to be in the coalition, uh, but at the moment they're being kept out, but they're probably, if, if, if it will expand, Uh, They're certainly uh, one of the favorites to to join, but there's still a lot of opposition from within the government from that happening.
0: Thank you. From Lynn Levin, Uh, how much influence can Netanyahu have in the near future in Israeli politics?
1: Massive influence. You know, uh, even in opposition, as I said, so much pivots around him. Uh, If this government, as I said, uh, if Netanyahu were to take a plea bargain or to resign from public life or resign from the Likud, it would be a massive, it would be the big bang. Um, So as long as he's there, um, the government stays for the time being. Uh, They will have internal elections in the Likud by the end of the year, but at the moment he would be expected to win, especially as uh, his opposition is is not focused on one person. It's, It's unlikely that anyone will rally around one particular opponent. There's lots of uh, people who see themselves as um, as future heads of the Likud. So I think his position at the moment is safe. Um, he doesn't have much say, uh, you know, day to day governance, obviously because he's in the opposition. They make a lot of noise. Uh, there's a lot of attacks on Bennett and the government and Lapid and Lieberman and Saar uh, from his camp, but that's noise, that's rhetoric. If they could. You know, stymie a vote here, a bill there, then that's a win for them. But at the end of the day, it's about making noise uh, from his side.
0: Thank you. And changing gears a little bit, Rabbi Joel Schwartzman asks: Most attention in American Jewish, in the American Jewish community, has been focused on Amnesty International's libelous report accusing Israel of being an apartheid state. Is there a similar outrage in Israel, apart from the comments coming from Lapid?
1: I think amongst the average Israeli, no, it's not. It's not a big news item. Uh, it certainly didn't lead the news. Um, it's more in sort of you know foreign policy circles, people who read the international media. Uh, it's been known for a while in, in these sort of circles that there has there is a coordinated and concerted approach to try and frame Israel as an apartheid state. The case obviously can't be made. And it hasn't been made, but the terminology is there. I, I read the report uh, before it was uh, released, and you know it, it was all over the title. It was all over the opening paragraphs, but the case simply wasn't even made seriously. Uh, but it's part of the propaganda war uh, against Israel. It's the attempt to delegitimize Israel to make it the pariah state. And you know they tried in the past uh, to try and say Israel was Nazis, and they understood that didn't work because of obviously. Uh, the historic connection with the Holocaust, uh, but apartheid is, is uh, they, they've understood that it's a good frame of reference because uh, a lot of the people that are, are reading it, especially the sort of so called millennials and a little bit older, don't remember apartheid South Africa. They just know it's bad, it's racist, it's wrong. Um, so, but it's a good framing from their point of view because it certainly frames Israel as an evil state, you know, probably uniquely evil even though Amnesty had called Myanmar apartheid, I'm not sure if they called them apartheid, said some of their actions and policies, they claim that's why they didn't single out Israel. It's clear from the fact that Human Rights Watch used it, Amnesty uses it, these anti-Israel organizations, BDS movement uh, has used it. So it's clearly part of a concerted, uh, coordinated attempt to label Israel. Uh, But there was a lot of pushback uh, coordinated uh, to a certain extent, from the Jewish world, the Zionist world, um, and and that's where it plays out. It plays out in the sort of ideological sphere, uh, but in Israel, the average Israeli is not concerned. It's not involved. Uh, doesn't really care uh, about these sort of things. It doesn't affect them uh, on a day to day basis, or even on a, you know a, a wider basis. But obviously, in foreign po- uh, foreign policy circles in the foreign ministry, it is a concern because the there is the fear that eventually it could start catching on, and you know, sort of uh, be equated, as it was by some, to the fa- infamous, I should say, uh, UN resolution equating Zionism with racism. This is the sort of modern attempt to equate Israel as an apartheid state as a state that shouldn't, uh, it isn't just, can't be justified. It was uh, was born in sin and should disappears as many would like it. Um, so that's certainly a worry in foreign policy circles in Israel, but amongst the average Israeli, very, very little.
0: Thank you. Robert Lurik asks, uh, what do you think of Israel participating with naval drills with the U.S., Oman, Bahrain, uh, Saudi Arabia for the first time, as he understands it?
1: Well, it goes back, you know, it, there's there's been a lot of uh, coordination. Uh, there's, there's not any uh, open Uh, drills with with some of these countries, Uh, but there's certainly a lot of below the surface uh, coordination this week. In fact, it it was considered quite historic, but I guess today it's, you know, with everything that's happened, perhaps it's lost some of its resonance. We had an Israeli president, the head of state of the Jewish states, the Jewish and democratic states, fly over Saudi Arabian airspace openly and publicly. Um, that was considered very historic, and certainly, you know, if someone would have said that a few years ago. You would have uh, said it's impossible, especially not with movement on the diplomatic, uh, the Palestinian issue. But the fact is, these things are happening today. So, um, an open public uh, military drills with some of these countries—we're not quite there yet, but I, I don't think uh, I don't think we're a million miles away from maybe something more open, there's, there's a lot of talk and a lot of sort of bets on who would be the next country. Uh, Qatar came out, I don't think Qatar were necessarily at the top of the list anyway, but they came out and said, you know, there's there's nothing doing for us because, uh, you know, there's nothing doing on the Palestinian uh, front. There's talk about Indonesia, perhaps, there's talk about uh, Oman. Um, Oman obviously um, actually hosted Prime Minister, former Prime Minister of Latina, So again, we're talking about countries who are having more open steps towards Israel. Uh, So this is certainly uh, positive developments.
0: Thank you. Well, we're on the military side of things here, Uh, Jacob Hirschman asks, uh, in the last few days Bennett has been referring to a laser shield that should be implemented in the next 12 months or so. Is this real?
1: Um, From what I understand, and I'm certainly no military expert, it is real. Uh, whether it's going to be implemented in the next 12 months, there's a lot of people who say it will take a lot longer than that. Uh, what he talked about is this sort of uh, laser system that would surround Israel that would be able to shoot down missiles on all uh, all of its fronts. Uh, what, what's significant about this is because it would change uh, the dynamic, um, the, the sort of missiles that are thrown into Israel at the moment, especially from Gaza. I said launch, not thrown. Um, uh, are relatively cheap, but Israel's Iron Dome costs something like $50,000 uh, a battery. Uh, and obviously, you know, the idea is for Hamas to exhaust Israel financially or whatever it is. And, you know, we get a lot of the funding from the US, uh, um, but, uh, you know, if we look at what Hezbollah have uh, on the Northern front, it has something like seven times the amount of rockets, or precision, longer range, um, and quite simply, it would be exorbitant to try and fight off uh, these sort of batteries. Also, uh, Hamas found a way around Iron Dome when they fired dozens at a time. Uh, sometimes, you know, very rudimentary uh, rockets that Iron Dome doesn't shoot down. So this new system that uh, Bennett uh, proudly touted uh, apparently will be much cheaper, cost a few dollars per laser, as it were. And the Hamas rockets are getting more and more expensive, than like the first below ones. So it changed the dynamic there, um, but a lot of military experts have said that he's, he's being overly optimistic that it'll be ready in twelve months. It only the system's been tried out, uh, uh, tried out on on drones and and other systems, but uh, to have it surrounding Israel within twelve months, again, I'm not an expert. I can't give anything behind the scenes on this, but uh, a lot of commentators have come out and said, yes, eventually we could have something like that in several years not the one to two year uh, timeline that Prime Minister Bennett talked about this week.
0: Thank you so much. And one last question from Kerry Hillebrand. Uh, recently, Israel announced the planned proc- procurement of several million no- Novavax COVID vaccines. Does this represent a no confidence in the Israeli developed brelife vaccine that is approaching approval?
1: Um, to the best of my knowledge, it's not that close to approval um we're talking about an old school vaccine in israel actually they're trying to be a sort of hybrid between the new style vaccine and the old style vaccine i don't think that we'll be able to develop it at the speed and the um the numbers of some of the more international brands there's been a lot of controversy surrounding that is uh, that the people behind the israeli vaccine have said that they were stymied after a great publicity uh, under netanyahu then the money wasn't there and the assistance wasn't there as opposed to some of the other uh, global brands that received assistance from, uh, from you know, international governments. Um, the fact that you know we've been using Pfizer all this time and we continue to use Pfizer and even some Moderna and some of this uh, I, I wouldn't say it doesn't show any confidence in the Israeli really, but the fact is you know you need to take what's on the market now rather than wait you know, who knows how long it will take and the efficacy and everything else. If, when it's released, if we can see high efficacy, if it's cheaper, if it's you know, whatever it is longer term, you know, that's that's the secret today. It's uh, not so much the efficacy, it's whether it can last long term because we've seen all the major uh, RNA vaccines are very effective, but in the short term, they're not lasting as long as everybody would hope. So, if the Israeli one could show that it has high efficacy and longer term uh, solutions. And I'm sure the Israeli government will, will go with it. But, uh, you know, it seems like coronavirus is here to stay. So, you know, you have to, you have to take whatever's out there because coronavirus is, is with us yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And Unfortunately, you can't wait for a few months' time to see what may be. So I think that's it's more about that uh, than anything else.
0: All right. Thank you so much. Well, we've come to the close of our webinar and podcast. Ashley, thank you so much for taking time to update us this week. Thank you. And for our viewers and listeners, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with Dr. Walid Fares. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.